The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now on Fast, inflation countdown. Stocks stage a big rally ahead of tomorrow's all-important CPI report, the last data point before the Fed's final decision on rates for 2022. Should you believe the market's good vibes ahead of that number? Plus, Tesla's bumpy ride, the stock tumbling another 6% today, now down over 25% since Elon Musk took over Twitter. Is his work at the Blue Bird being seen as a black mark for the EV brand? And later, so naughty, it's nice. Our traders take the wraps off their charts that have been so bad this year, they might just be ready to be good. A holiday spin on a Fast Money favorite. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the NASDAQ market site. Full house here on set tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Courtney Garcia, and the chart master, Carter Worth, with his big keyboard. And we start off with the countdown to CPI. Economists hoping to see more evidence that inflation is easing before the Fed makes its final rate decision of the year. And the markets seem to think they will get good news tomorrow. Stocks closing near their highs of the day, with the Dow leading the charge, up nearly 530 points. All three major indices putting in their best day of the month. Meantime, crude oil taking a big leg higher after hitting 52-week lows on Friday. And interest rates higher, too. So how do you make sense of the markets on a day where it's Hard to find some red hours out there. Uh, Tim, what do you say? It, it was a wild day for not a wild yeah. day, right? If you think right. about it, we had a very big move in the S&P. The VIX was up almost 10%. And, and the VIX is the one part of the equation as we rally, at least over, as we may rally, uh, as we enter the next couple of weeks in the last couple of weeks of the year, that, that has me concerned because I think volatility um, is too low. But if anything, if you're following that VIX chart for the last six months, it's pretty much signaled tops and bottoms. Uh, and, and, you know, top of the VIX has certainly been bottom of the market, et cetera. So, look, you, you have a case here where I, I think everyone's expectations, at least I think as we talk about this and the trends for the last six months about inflation peaking, at least in terms of goods and commodities, uh, for sure. Question is really how bad is the labor market? But, but ultimately, I think we have an environment for a softer PPI at a minimum. Um, I look at where I think the Fed is, and I think we, we kind of have had the worst of the Fed. And I think that's an environment going into the Fed meeting that people are prepared for. Maybe we're going to get surprised. I think Powell has a lot of work to do on that because I think he can't uh, be overly complacent. But I think people feel the Fed's in the rearview mirror. Yeah. I mean, we get what we want from the Fed in terms of we get what is expected out of the Fed, Karen. And maybe we were talking about the pull forward of a rally, the pull forward that we saw, you know, in, in October and so on. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just compressed. Maybe this is the groundwork for the rally through year end. I don't know, because I think that we could we could see a very different thing in, in 10 minutes tomorrow if the <laughs> yeah. CPI number is hot mm-hmm. or very or, or very cool, for that matter. But I, to me, it was just sort of front running this expectation of a hot number of a cool number, rather. But does that mean that's already priced in? 
I don't know. So I don't know that we can look into anything that the Fed's going to do until we see that hint from what the CPI is. So I was sort of surprised. One thing going into the market today was that merger Monday. Mm -hmm. That's generally a good thing because people see, oh, there's value in companies that didn't seem to be that valuable before the weekend. Right. Yeah, and I, I do think this is a good sign. You're clearly seeing there's optimism of what we're going to see in CPI numbers tomorrow and what the Fed's going to do this week. It was also kind of interesting. Today was a day where we got an, an article out in the journal. And it was actually highlighting how many analysts are expecting this soft landing. And I think that was, we're seeing a little bit more of that than we have previously, where people are actually expecting we can get through this. Inflation can come down without forcing us into a recession, or at least a severe one. And I think seeing a lot more of that, I think some of that is the positivity you saw in the stock markets today, in addition to the optimism on the CPI numbers. And you can feel the tension just in the index itself. The SPX is now on its fifth week of one of the tightest ranges it's been in in the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. So everyone's waiting. And obviously, just as you all are discussing, we are discussing, you know, you get the numbers people want and they're going to run it, and if you don't. But the really question is not about year-end rally, it's about next year. Do you come in and see wholesale selling, as has so happened in the beginning of certain years? And I think that's a great risk. You think we'll see wholesale I selling even after this year not away, being so back great? Away from the Can I ask a question on the heels uh, of yeah. that? Do you see wholesale selling in years where there's been a down year? Is that generally right. the it's, pattern? It's, it's both. Um, so what we know is actually, let's talk about the, the so-called Santa Claus rally or December. It's just a momentum study. Right? Everyone knows that typically most years are up. 70% of the time markets go up. And uh, a year-end rally in December is just continuing what was going on. Negative years, the whole year-end Santa Claus rally, Christmas rally, it doesn't hold as a premise. So we're seeing that now. As to your point, does a down year uh, be, is that the precondition for a bad January? There's no study that I've seen that indicates that. Well, the precondition is that interest, excuse me, earnings expectations have not come down enough. And I, I, I just think when we look at both the structure of the market and where the passive assets flows have, have meant that mega cap tech have carried the market for the last couple of years, but we haven't really gotten those earnings revisions downward. And if you look at where, you know, where's the S&P for 2023 on earnings? We do this math all the time. And, and, and right now it's not at 200 bucks and, and it isn't at a place where um, I think a lot of people expect it can go. Now, the, the other side of that is I still think there's a ton of fear and sentiment and, and a lot of cash. You know, I participate in the Bank of America Fund Manager Survey. I mean, those cash levels are really at, at, at significantly high levels, uh, put call ratios, things like that, that, that tell you that the market, the, the wall of worry and the risk to me is actually higher based upon that. But the fundamentals are telling me something very, very different. But do earnings estimates really have to come down? If, if now we believe that a soft landing is possible, maybe expectations don't need to come down as much as we thought maybe a month ago. Uh, I, mean, I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, if, if, if we think that is now possible and that is now the consensus, maybe we don't need that massive reset. Maybe we just need a slight reset, which we've started to see happening already in this, this past earnings season. I mean, one thing about cash levels is they're kind of always high, right? I mean, they might be higher or lower. But here's something that is interesting. Going right at this time every year, Wall Street strategists, they put out their year-ahead price targets. And so going back to about 1998, since it's been tracked, Wall Street always predicts an up year. Never predicted a down year. The strategist as a group. This year, they're predicting flat. Now, not all the strategists have been heard from, but basically... So that's bullish. Well, that's the question, <laughs> yeah. right? So that this yeah. group is calling for a price target of 4,000. That's where we are right now. Mm -hmm. That's unprecedented. They always have a number that's between 10, 8, 12 Is there any, um, do we know the nuance though? Because I feel like a lot of strategists think that the first half or the first quarter or whatever, the first part of the year is going to be really rough and they're going to rally into the back half. And so it's very different. Hard to know that. I wish I did. 
<laughs> we wish you did, too. Down, down, down there's a lot of Glenn right here. It's sort of kind of neat and putting a, with a bow. Then it's win-win, right? Well, I, I, you know, and Courtney brings up that you're having economists and folks out there saying maybe soft landing's possible. I, I know Powell and the Fed have certainly given us that guidance that is possible. Um, I, I feel like we, we borrowed a lot of, of positive growth in the pandemic also. I, I think we, we have to pay the piper. L- leaving aside 500 basis points of Fed funds um, that are going to get priced into this market, I, I just think we actually avoided a, a, a recession that we deserve to have two years ago. And I think some of that plays into you start to unwind some of these factors. Some of this is very good for inflation. You remove some of the, the bottlenecks, some of the things that actually have kept pricing high. Some of that also has helped GDP. Um, I, I, I think, uh, and I, I honestly, Recession to me is not a naughty word. I, I, it's not even a naughty word when I look at uh, where earnings need to go and I look at some great companies and we've done this and we've done this. With, I say this with Walmart. You know, recessionary environment sometimes is not bad for Walmart. This company goes from you know two to three percent uh, earnings to, to 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 you know to flat. That's not a reason to correct a stock twenty percent, but that's what they'll do to it, and that's an opportunity as an investor. Yeah, I agree with that. Recession isn't a terrible word. We haven't really seen as much of the layoffs as we are going to see, right? And so to the extent that we look at some of these uh, tech companies, like the FANG, for example, that this is the way they're going to grow their earnings now is through layoffs. So for the stocks, that may be a good thing. If you have a job there and then you end up being laid off, that's not such a good thing. But so you can see how we get, maybe it's not even so soft a landing. It's It's a recession that could still be good for some equities. Right. Our next guest expects the Fed to take a hawkish tone to reverse some of the market's end-of-the-year enthusiasm. Let's welcome in Paul McCulley, former PIMCO chief economist. Paul, great to see you. Good to see you. So how hawkish? I don't think it's going to be terribly hawkish. I think he was very bullish going back to his uh, Brookings uh, speech just, you know, uh, 10 days ago. And we're clearly in a new phase of monetary policy tightening and it's going to be slower uh, and will be finished, I think, in the next few months. But I think right now he probably will lean against uh, the incredible enthusiasm as manifest by the deep negative yield curve right now uh, that, you know, the that he's not going to be uh, as friendly as the market hopes. So I think it's a tactical bearish uh, tilt on Wednesday. I think fundamentally he's declared uh, mini victory, if you will, at Brookings. I'm curious, Paul, how how uh, closely do you think the Fed looks at the market reaction to very last-minute data like we're going to get with the CPI, in that if the CPI comes in lighter, does he then, you know, heighten the hawkishness in his speech and his commentary afterwards? Is it that responsive? I don't think for the FOMC at large it's that responsive. Uh, I think he will be responsive in how he Uh, sets the tone of the press conference based on what the the number comes out tomorrow. But fundamentally, I think the decision has been made for Wednesday. They're in the midst of a second derivative pivot. They are slowing down. They're going to do 50 this time, uh, and they're going to indicate they're going to continue slow, maybe go to 25 out in the first half of next year, uh, and they will have a terminal rate around 5%. So I think that's what they're going to say on Wednesday. So the pressure will be fine-tuning, if you will, according to market sentiment. But I think the fundamental decision for Wednesday has already been made. Paul, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Let me ask you, you said what you think they will do. What do you think they should do? (laughs) Uh, I think the Fed has done a potload of tightening this year. Uh, I think the yield curve is telling us that. 
uh, we're seeing the uh, uh, the goods sector, the commodity sector, manifestly roll over uh, the housing bubble. And Jay actually called it a housing bubble at Brookings uh, has popped. Uh, and I think we have in train uh, slower housing inflation. Uh, so if it was up to me, uh, strictly up to me, I would say, let's, you know, uh, declare a pause after this one uh, and see what's going to happen going forward. I'm not forecasting that, but from a normative perspective, I think they've done enough now. Paul, I see in the notes that you think that the Fed will actually pivot. In other words, actually reverse some of this hiking late next year. And I'm wondering what the, the context of, of taking some of this back will be. Is it that we are in a deep recession? I mean, what will cause the Fed to actually complete, com- to reverse, to start reversing course? I don't think it requires a recession at all. It simply requires inflation to continue disinflating, you know, from seven to six to five to four. Uh, once you get south of four, then I think that uh, uh, it's open season for Fed easing because as the inflation rate comes down, you'll get even more inverted on the yield curve, cash to the belly of the curve. Uh, so I think a soft landing uh, requires uh, a confirmation of easing, a pivot, if you will. Uh, so it doesn't require a recession. Uh, and for those of us with gray hair, we can remember 94 and 95, where we didn't have a recession, but we had an easing cycle uh, uh, in 95. Uh, so I'm looking at something similar to that. And, and it is fantastic gray hair, uh, as you call. <laughs> uh, the, the question I have for you, though, is we talk about perceptions, second and then third derivative, and you, you do a lot of philosophy on t- layered on top of your, your, your economics. Do you, do you think that the market is is with the expectation that the Fed is 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 pivoting somewhat, but that uh, the, the conversation we were having, which was about earnings expectations and where the market really should go, and, and uh, that ultimately we set ourselves up for not as bad of a 2023. I realize we're the traders here, uh, but market perceptions that, again, are two or three steps um, ahead and almost expecting what we're supposed to be thinking, what do you think? Well, you're asking me to reverse engineer, you know, day-to-day market expectations. Uh, and uh, so I, I think in general, um, sentiment is going to swing based upon high frequency data and the marketplace will extrapolate high frequency into long term. And hopefully the Fed doesn't do that. Uh, and as we look out uh, to 23, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic relative to the prevailing pessimism that we're seeing from the economics community, notably on the real economy. I'm stunned that we have up over 60% now uh, of my old profession uh, forecasting uh, a recession. Uh, And I'm not sure if they're using the yield curve or what they're using, uh, but there's no a priori reason to forecast a recession from this standpoint. There is a reason to forecast uh, a Fed pivot and softer monetary policy uh, once inflation comes down, and that's effectively what I'm forecasting. Paul, great to see you. Thanks as always. Thank you. Paul McCulley. Uh, Courtney, what do you think? If, if Paul's scenario is true and we reach the rate, we pause for now, we reach the rate, and we actually reverse some at the end of next year, what kind of framework does that provide for equities? I mean, equities have really been honing on what's happening with inflation and interest rates. So if they're coming down, that's ultimately going to be a good thing. I do think it's an interesting point he brings up that we don't have to have a recession for rates to come down. So I think that's what most people are expecting, that if they're pivoting, it's because we're forced into a recession. Right. 
So again, I think I'm kind of hearing more of this. There is more and more of a possibility of that soft landing, which I do think is a good sign, but we have to eventually see it, rates come down to a certain point. I mean, were they to pivot that quickly? I think your answer is gold. You want to what? have gold. Gold. Mm. Yeah, gold. Mm. Mm. When, mean, do you start, how, when do you, when uh, you no, start that I, trade? I mean, well, you, a you year in advance? Now, but what is the rate at which the last, uh, do you guys, you must know, right, when they stop raising and when they start reversing? What's the time frame on average? Well, well it, into next year. Yeah, I was going to say, I, 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 look at the Fed futures curve, and it tells you from May of 23 to May of 24, right. the Fed gonna, is going to ease 100 basis points, which you should be buying well ahead of that. But back to gold, I, look, I, I feel like we're giving away another part of the show, so I'm, I get in trouble for this all the time on the show. I'm not, not going to say a word. He brought naughty, it up. The Carter brought it up. Nice well, I'm not even here right now. You're like famous <laughs> for this. I'm not even here. Talking ahead just, of segment. We're just talking about Just giving it up, giving he up. He did turn his phone off, though. I saw him do it. So progress. Little things here. Anyway, <laughs> up next, Oracle getting popped in the after-hour session. The earnings call underway right now. We'll go inside the numbers, get the latest on the move right after this break. Plus, Evercore ISI's Julian Emanuel waiting in the wings. He'll tell us why the first half of next year could really test investors with weak stomachs. But if you can survive the ugly start, he thinks you'll be handsomely rewarded. Fast Money, be right back. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Oracle shares higher after reporting a beat on the top and bottom lines for the latest quarter. Those results driven by strong demand for cloud software. Frank Holland joins us with the latest from the conference call. Frank. Hey there, Melissa. Uh, just on the call right now, CEO Safricats forecasted that cloud growth this year would be about 30%. Looking at the report, pretty strong with beats on the top and the bottom line. Outperformance in two key segments, as you can see. Uh, important to note, it's on-premise business strongly outperform estimates, perhaps signaling the hesitancy of companies to make that cloud transition that so many CEOs have talked about. We've heard both Salesforce and Palo Alto Networks mention that hesitancy and longer um, time frame to close deals. 
The big number to watch here is deferred revenue, a proxy for demand. That had a strong beat over estimates, signaling a strong pipeline of business going forward. Soft numbers from a number of cloud players, including Salesforce, leading to those stocks dropping. Uh, Oracle says also that EPS would have been nine cents higher if not for the rising dollar against other currencies. But you have to look at here, look at this and just see uh, in Q4, the dollar has fallen 6%. So that's going to be a question about what that means for cloud companies from Oracle, Salesforce, Palo Alto and others going forward. Back over to you. Yep. Frank, thanks for the latest. Frank Holland on Oracle. Um, Obviously a huge tailwind for a lot of companies, any companies that felt the pressure from a a stronger dollar here, Tim. What do you make of this number? Look, I think these numbers are strong. I think the the second quarter numbers were very strong. And if you think about the strength of the cloud business, there's there's a tailwind here. If you you look at the company from a valuation relative to its peers that are also, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's SAP, I mean, some of these other folks are trading significantly higher multiples. Oracle's very attractive here and it's outperformed that group. It's down, I don't know, it's about uh, five to 10 percent this year. And if you think about the performance, some of this, I think, is just multiple. This should be trading 17, 18 times, which puts this stock probably uh, closer to 100 bucks. And, you know, speaking of outperforming the group, I mean, from its low, right, the tech sector bottomed on the 13th. This bottomed on the 29th of September, two weeks prior. It's up 33 percent. That relative strength, compared, that's triple the performance of the tech sector. So, uh, to some extent, you favor this kind of thing, especially when that good relative strength... Too much, though? Overdone? I, I mean, it's had so. a big move. It's a big move, but it's not that steep relative to its 150-day moving average. Yeah. Karen? I feel like I kind of missed this one, right? Mm-hmm. It was sort of out of favor for a while, and then actually traded at what I thought was a pretty attractive P.E. The P.E. now is... It's well above market. Maybe that's fair. It should be. I mean, these are decent numbers, but uh, I'm not going to chase it. Yeah. Yeah, I do think, I know there's been a lot of positives here, but I, I would be more of a holder of this. And I do think when you look at some of the, the fundamentals um, of Oracle, I mean, a lot of their earnings per share growth has actually been from share buybacks. And they have about $80 billion in net debt right now, which is almost 40% of their market cap. So I do think some of those things may not be as quite attractive as, as you're looking for companies currently in this in this environment. All right, coming up, Amgen striking a deal to buy Horizon Therapeutics. Could this start a wave of biotech buyouts? We'll break it down, see what the options market is saying. Plus, bracing for panic. Evercore's Julian Emanuel says he may be, we may be in for an even rockier road in the first half of the year, but will it be worth the pain? Where he says we are heading from here. You're watching Fast Money live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on First Solar, the company being added to the S&P 500, replacing Fortune Brands Home and Security. Fortune is moving to the mid-cap index. This change will be effective December 19th. First Solar seeing a pop of 1.7% after hours. Meantime, Amgen emerging as the winner in the race to buy Horizon Therapeutics in a near $28 billion deal. That's the biggest healthcare acquisition this year. Amgen to pay $116.50 a share in cash for Horizon, which makes treatments for rare immunity and inflammatory diseases. $1.5 
The stock was trading in the 60s before it confirmed it was holding merger talks last uh, month. So is this the start of a wave of deals in the pharma and biotech space? Certainly for Amgen, it's a needed deal. Their big drugs are going to go off patent at the end of the decade, so they had to replace that source of revenue. But is it a wa- is it the first in a wave, I guess, is the question here. Yeah, I think it probably is. Mm-hmm. We know there were other bidders here, right? right. So um, they're going to be looking for something to buy as they all face this issue of growth at various times of what's coming off patent and wh- how their revenue streams are going to look. But I also think that um, you see other people do it. As a CEO of a company, it sounds ridiculous, but you feel like, hey, I need to do a deal here. That it's, you know, it's musical chairs. I don't want to be left without something to buy and look like I'm not doing anything. I'm going to go out and find a deal. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think you're going to see more of this, right? I mean, I think that the healthcare space has actually looked really attractive. They have really healthy balance sheets, and this is a really good way that they can increase their revenue sources. And a lot of times with these, it is some of those with the best drugs, they are going to have the best performance. And so I think you're going to see kind of that race there. I mean, one way to play it, if one wants to sort of not bet on a name specifically, but mm-hmm. the theme, if you look at the XBI relative to the IBB, one is equal weight and one is skewed towards Amgen and Regeneron. So it would be a Paris trade getting long XBI, which captures the group as an equal weight, and short IBB. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and it, if you think about a lot of the big cap biotech stocks, and I, I, it, there's different studies out there, but the, the patent cliff that falls off the hill yeah. is, is a couple hundred billion dollars if you take the top guys of the, of the IBB. And you see the deal flow that we've seen already this year. You've had J&J, you've had Pfizer, you've had massive, massive deals. So um, we, we kind of know this is an inevitability. I mean, the, you know, this deal is one that's interesting because Tepetsa, am I pronouncing that correctly? I don't know. Um, but this is their thyroid. I, yeah, I don't sure. know. It's I, you, you never know. Um, and <laughs> And I never pronounce things correctly, but but I mean this is a, this is a the part of the growthy part of the business that actually hasn't been that growthy, and, and I think that's one of the, the questions that people have: is the pipeline really that strong? But the question also is, you know, with all this cash and you're making these big deals, we've seen poor acquisitions before, where you, you give enough rope to the company and they do some something terrible with it. Um, we saw it with Gilead way back. Yeah, then. I mean, Gilead is, is seems to have been the poster child, yeah. and, and and the move into oncology and some of the sexier parts of, of the the biopharma space are, are things that are very defendable. Um, but again, there's there's big cash piles that can disappear overnight. I think you have to be careful. All right, let's stick with the the healthcare space. Options traders are making big bets for more upside on one name in particular. Mike Cozy Action. Mike, what are you seeing? Yeah, so we're taking a look at GSK. This is a pretty big name, about $70 billion enterprise value. It traded well over four times the average daily call volume today. All of that activity was concentrated in the February 38 calls. We saw a block of 14,000 of those trade for a dollar and a quarter, and ultimately well over 23,000 of those calls traded. This company, by the way, did get a favorable court ruling last week. That was related to the uh, Zantac cancer issue. Right. So, Mike, I'm just curious, how do you interpret... Um, what the projected move uh, is saying. Not that it's not that is it that it's doing a deal or. Well, I mean, here's one of the things is that with the cloud, I think that we had over it before that favorable ruling, that was fairly unlikely. The company does generate pretty good cash flow and it faces like a lot of other mature pharmaceutical companies, some of the same pressures that uh, Tim was just talking about. So they weren't going to do any deals, I don't think, while that cloud was hanging over them. But ah. this does free up that possibility, generating a little over 5 to $6 billion a year in free cash flow. They have some ammunition. Yeah, how does that uh, chart look, Carter? Well, it gapped up on the news uh, mm-hmm. three days yeah. at the end of last week, and we have now filled that gap, sold back all the way, given back oh. all the gains. I think you buy it for a bounce. Mm. 
Mike, thanks. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Still to come, a Christmas version of So Bad It's Good. We will hear why one of our traders thinks there is a beaten-down home builder that is so naughty it could be nice in the new year. But next, Evercore's Julian Emanuel joins the desk why he thinks investors better have lots of tums standing by early next year. His must-see market call for 2023 after this break. Fast Money be right back. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check in the market. Stocks jumping in the final hour of trading. The Dow surging 528 points, closing at the high of the day. The rally follows the Dow's worst weekly performance since September. The Nasdaq and S&P 500 also delivering strong gains today. The positive momentum comes a day before the key CPI report and day one of the Fed meeting. Meantime, a new 2023 price target on the street. Evercore ISI expects the S&P 500 to end the next year at 41.50. That's only a 4% gain from today's close. But the path to that seemingly meager gain could be stomach churning. Julian Emanuel is the man behind this target. He's a senior managing director at Evercore ISI. He joins us here on set. Julian, great to see you. Great to be here. Um, one does not like to use the word panic on Wall Street, and yet panic is the word I think that you use when, when describing what we will see in the first part of the year. So, so when you think about 2022, we've had this sort of what I call the lazy river of volatility down. You know, we hit bottom at down 25 uh, and change, and we've rallied back. But there has never been a time where there's been emotion in this market, real, honest-to-goodness uh, emotion. And there is no bear market in history that hasn't had that emotional volatility You're spike. You're talking about capitulation, blood on the yeah, streets. That's absolutely, sort of, yeah, absolutely. And, and frankly, if you're thinking about it in terms of risk-reward or if you're thinking about it in terms of the Fed's reaction function and the Fed's telling you they want unemployment to go to 4.4% uh, to sort of, you know, clear the labor force, you've never had, you've never not had a recession with those kinds of numbers. So you put that all together and for us, the narrative would be, let's clear that out in the first half of the year and then get a really high value buying zone uh, where people can, can you know, put new money to work for the long term, as opposed to this trading back and forth that's been the entire year. What is a catalyst for that panic? And I ask you that because the markets are acting like the Fed is, is under control. We know what the Fed is going to do. They're probably going to do 50 and then they're going to pause and like let it rest for a little while. Um, so what causes, do we see a massive reset on, on earnings? I mean, are we going to see unemployment tick drastically higher in the first half of the year? Well, we certainly are going to see the reset on earnings. We've okay. seen that. It's going mm -hmm. to happen. Our suspicion is when we get to this next earnings season, uh, the market's ability to slough off the downgrades that we saw in both the July and the October month is going to be less because it's, you know, new year uh, and there'll be really more uncertainty. W what it really is, is just getting closer to that recession. This is the kind of thing that actually happened in 2000 and 2001. You burst the bubble. Mm -hmm. You had a rally back. But the recession was still a year in the offing, and so the market held up. And then once the recession became crystallized in people's minds, frankly, the most bullish thing this market has going for it is the fact that everyone knows there's going to be a recession. 
And uh, Carter brought this up earlier, is that my fellow competitors have an average price target of 4000 That's what we used to call when I was on the buy side, a short squeeze in the making. <laughs> Um, and I, I have seen a lot of these calls here, right, whereas the first half of the year, it's going to be a difficult year. But do you, like, where do you see that in the year? Is this going to be after the new year? Are we still going to have a few more months of this where we're hoping the Fed is going to get us to the soft landing and then we're going to see this in the spring? I mean, do you guys have an idea of when in the year you're going to see that? So we're thinking it, it's a mid-year uh, type of occasion that basically you, know, you could get the market sort of churned for a couple months, discounting the fact that we know the Fed's going to slow. But again, these are all things we know. Um, and when it comes down to is just a more near uh, approach to when that recession is going to start. And then what happens is, is the degree of any downturn is dependent on the severity of the recession. We don't think the recession is going to be that severe, really sort of in, in concert with Ed Hyman calling for 0% GDP for the full year 23. That implies a mild recession. But enough given sort of the psychology, uh, the risk-averse psychology, the competitiveness of CAS, which most investors have no frame of reference over the last 15 years, mm -hmm. um, and that's, how, that's the recipe. It feels like you're making your job a lot more complicated, Julian, because you're basically calling for a first half and then a second half. And so I'm going to ask you what your price target is for the first half when two we hit that panic. There, there, <laughs> two bites there we go. I, I also want to know what the rally back is going to be like on the other side. So, so we think that in the first half of the year, uh, either the S&P 500 or one of the other indices will challenge or take out the lows made in October. That's sort of the clearing event from a price action. And interestingly enough, and Carter, I'm sure as the technical guy, you would endorse this. This year has been unique in that price action has said more than anything, more than fundamentals, more than news, more than anything. Otherwise, how would you have had that reversal on October 13th in an absolutely horrible inflation number? And so for us, basically, the price action is what we'll be looking for to find that clearing event with one or more of the indices taking out those October lows. So October lows then to 4150. And, and look, again, you could overshoot because sure. the other thing that we found is that when the markets rebound, the ability to go to a higher multiple is mind-bogglingly rapid because yeah. the sentiment changes very quickly. Julian, great to see you. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. What do you think? He said you would endorse it, do you? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot to consider. I think one thing to think about is exactly a year ago at this time, um, same circumstance where we're all thinking about the year ahead, yep. strategists are putting out their targets, but one out of two stocks in the S&P 500 was already down 20%. The market was collapsing hmm. in December, even though we were going on to make new highs on Jan 4. So the internals, and the question is, are the internals improving now? To some extent they are, but watch for that, right? Where, where there's divergence between the index and the constituents. As painful as it's been to kind of wait out this period where people want to have those clearing moments, and by the way, Julian talked about, you know, a, a VIX that hit 35 multiple times in 2022, but that was not the cathartic moment. And, and I think, you know, you have different timelines for what a inflation-inspired bear market should mean in terms of a timeline, and it tends to run longer. The most important thing for investors, though, is we are getting to a place where you can be investors again. And, and, it's, and it's probably going to come somewhere in the first or second quarter. Part of this has been we've all been waiting for that guidance from CEOs to talk about uh, a world without supply chain, a world without 
COVID pull forward, a world where we have some inflation uh, actually starting to abate. So I think that's the good news for investors. And whatever that number is, this is the, these are the questions both I deal with my investors all the time, but also what I think we get collectively on this desk is when is it time to step back in and actually just because people who watch the show and watch CNBC and invest in markets love markets and they love investing in companies. Um, the good news is that the Fed will have cleared. The things that are going to be hanging out there that you don't know right. and they come from slower growth are the credit environment that is is often the scariest part of everything we ever talk about on this show. But I, I do think, based upon Julian's timeline, that's a timeline you really step back in full time. In the meantime, this has been one of the greatest trading markets of all time. Yeah, 2023 will finally get normalization to some extent so. in terms right. of the business conditions. I hope so. It's interesting if you think about November of last year, the Fed mm-hmm. started to tell you Right. That's it. We're going to turn. If I had told you they were the expectation would they be five or north, that would have seemed quite extraordinary, probably, right? And somehow we've weathered it through, not, you know, definitely battered, but not down for the count. So I don't know. I'd like to see some normalization, but I also think that some of the, the heyday, those super growthy numbers are not coming back. Right. The, the pandemic highs. The pandemic highs the pandemic and the, balance, you know, yeah. the no earnings, but huge mm-hmm. multiple. Coming up, Tesla seems to be on a downhill slide with no breaks, dropping over 13% this month, down over 25% since Elon Musk took the wheel at Twitter. So what's it going to take to stop the stall? And tis the season for a new trading game. So naughty, it's nice. Why one of our traders thinks Amazon's been so bad this year, it could be good a good bet right now. Fast Money will be back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a double dose of buzzkills for you, starting with Tesla shares dropping more than 6% to a new two-year-plus low today. The latest move coming after a report that more customers now have a negative view of the brand than a positive one. Tesla is down more than 52% this year, 25% since CEO Elon Musk took over Twitter at the end of October. There's the whole distraction fear. There are fears about China, price cuts in China, demand waning in China. Lots of stuff going on here, Karen. Yeah, lots of stuff going on. The distraction is Mm -hmm. one of them for sure. But I also think that, you know, he's very out there. He's very public. He's very opinionated. And I think that most of those opinions are probably somewhat more offensive to Democrats than they are to Republicans. And Democrats have been the buyers primarily, not only, of course, but primarily. And you got to think that that has some effect. There is no company in America right now that is more intertwined with their CEO than right. Elon Musk. So him being out there and, and you know, as sort of, yeah, you know, he's just, I don't know what the word is, uh, provocative, I guess. I, I, if I were a Tesla shareholder, I would be pretty pissed. So one thing, we've seen Tesla fall a lot. I looked, okay, year over year, let's see GM versus Tesla. Not surprisingly, GM was better. But then I looked at the two-year stack of GM versus Tesla, and I was a bit surprised, actually, to find out I hope that this says that GM was better because that, that's what I found. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> the so white line is above little, the orange very line. Hard to tell. But I, Barely. And so I, I feel like this leg down since he bought it is pretty much on Elon. Yeah. I mean, at the highs, uh, we were saying what happens if Elon Musk steps down? What happens if Elon Musk is forced away from the business? And that was the negative. So it makes sense that, that what we're seeing here in terms of the opinion of Elon Musk as that declines, that, that that has an impact on brand perception and maybe even the stock price. Carter, what does the chart stock say price. to you? Well, the thing is this, and we all know this, uh, although we all fight it, I do myself, 
just don't buy stocks in downtrends. Unless, of course, it's so bad it's good, but that's a different subject. It's, you're like the Nancy Reagan of bad stock charts. Just, don't, just, say, <laughs> just no. say no. Yes. Just say no just to bad stock no. charts. <laughs> Tim. Well, I, I think also, you know, Tesla, we just got done having a conversation talking about stocks that won't work again. Um, and I don't think you're going to have a market backdrop for Tesla to ever exist again. What? I, I, I'm saying. Wait, a, you're saying a, the best days of Tesla are behind. I'm as saying the best market backdrop a, for a stock like that yeah. is gone. Okay. And, and this, for a long time, was a company that didn't make money. It makes money now. Uh, but it survived in a marketplace. It was rewarded in a marketplace that didn't care about profitability. Um, I still think they have trouble making their core car, their mass car, profitably. But more importantly, I, I just think this car um, does get caught up in a high multiple stock regime. Stock regime. It also is a, it's an auto company that I, you know, I mean, Karen's two-year charts on, on both these companies. I mean, they, there is cyclicality there, and I think there are commonality of that, even though it's an OEM. All right. Meantime, shares of RH posting its worst day since August after Goldman Sachs cut its rating on the stock to sell from neutral. The move ending a three-day winning streak after its earnings uh, last week. Courtney, what do you think of RH? Yeah, I think you're going to have to, a lot of these companies, right, you're seeing that they're having to discount in order to get the customers there, right? People are spending, but I think they really are spending selectively, and you're really not seeing that with Restoration Hardware or RH currently. Um, so I, I think that might continue to hurt them in here for a little bit. I think part of what we heard from them, th those are numbers that outperform significantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, they beat consensus by 20%, but I think there is a backlog drain that is something that may be moving quicker. And the ability to them, to, the ability of restoration to stay above a 20% EBIT margin is something that the street's concerned about. So again, are they going to have to uh, promo these big couches and which things like that? Which, which I mean, they, they didn't want to do. Which they didn't want to do. They have like this weird thing where it's like if you're a member of RH and you get like this set percent mm -hmm. off of the list price or something so right. they may not discount but they have that sort of yeah that's uh, i'm not falling for that by the way i mean thing. i yeah. mean it, it, it's almost like you're going to get that price. right, right. So you gonna, pay 200 dollars to get right. a 15 percent discount i'll do that all day long yeah. i don't have to be a member until it's time to be a member we were a little skeptical to to be fair to the desk a lot of times we miss things but th when they announced we're doing the rh plane we're doing the rh hotel you we're brought RH this up everything yeah. Right? It's an RH like world, RH. and you're just living. That was peak RH, $700 a share. It's a very different story now. I don't own it. It's sort of interesting, but um, it never should have been 700 Yeah, Probably so not, but I think this is capitulation. The analysts are oh, all yeah? throwing the towel. Price target on the street was 700 Now it's 300 Yeah. So in the beginning of the year, we think this stock wow. is worth 700 Now we think it's worth 300 that's I own it, and I, I've been okay. I've been I've been buying it in the last month and a half to two months, and and you know this is this is rocky price action, but I tend to agree with Carter on that. All right, coming up, Santa may be making a list and checking it twice, but the chart master's got his own take on the stocks that have been naughty and nice this year. We'll find out where he stands with some big names when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer Cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Constellation Energy. You won't want to miss that. Catch a full interview, top of the hour, on Mad Money. We are in the holiday spirit here on Fast Money and wanted to put a spin on one of our favorite games. So instead of so bad, it's good. We're playing a round of so naughty, it's nice. Our traders are looking at a couple of troublemaking names they think deserve better than a lump of coal in their stockings. And the chart master is playing Santa Claus to deliver the final decision. 
No costume, though. Uh, Tim, you're going to start with I'm going to start with gold. gold. Uh, yeah, and, and <laughs> it was almost came up earlier, and it seemed like we couldn't talk about it, so I strangely shut up, which I rarely do. But in gold's case, this is a case where if any environment should have been great for gold, it was one where you had inflation, where you had this dynamic, except for gold was death. And if you look at that chart, especially in a world where you actually had a couple conditions where gold should have been working, but we've started to get that move higher in gold. I think if the Fed has truly at least vanquished inflation in terms of the concept of its worst, um, this is the environment for gold, a world where we have slow growth. That's the status quo for 23. And that's an environment where gold really works, even against uh, cash, which now is worth something. So stay in this trade. And I think if the higher beta part of this trade are the gold miners, which will outperform the underlying metal. So we know already, Carter, that you like gold in this environment. What do you see in the chart? Right. So uh, I do, but let's do it anyway. Here we go. So what do we know? Well, first of all, what we know, and there's, it's always fun, right? A trend line or something, it doesn't matter what, keeps on responding to that line and then moves above it is a change in trend. So what do we have first? We have a triple bottom that's very well defined, which means this gets a nice green arrow. Now, if we were to draw the lines another way, take a look. Let's do the exact same chart. And you also can do this, a massive head and shoulders bottom, which means another green arrow. I'm with you, Tim. Right on. All right, let's move Love on it. here. Um, Courtney here has flagged DR Horton. She's put it on the nice list. Courtney, why? Yeah, I do think um, housing has gotten hit really hard, especially with interest rates being a lot higher this year. And even when they're starting to come down, I mean, a lot of those home buyers aren't there. And so you're, you're really not seeing a lot of the optimism coming through. Um, but I, I really like the valuation here. It trades at less than nine times earnings. When you just look at the supply demand issue, I mean, there was about five million more households created over the last decade than homes built. And that is a problem that is not going away anytime in the near future. Specifically, I like DR Horton because about 85% of their home sales are 400,000 and under, which is going to get those millennials and their first-time home buyers. And I think that's a that's an um, idea that's only going to continue, especially if interest rates start to come down here, which we do think they will. Okay, so Carter, naughty or nice in your view? It's awfully nice. Let's let's figure it out together. Awfully nice. What do we know? Yeah. So if we can measure trend in many ways, one way to measure trend is use a moving average. The 150 moving average is now rising. We also know, of course, that it makes a low in June. And does it make a low the way stock market does in October? No. So the relative performance is tremendous. So one way to draw the lines is that. Let's look at another iteration. And this is the same chart on top. But now we're looking at the relative performance. So the, the key is this, that if I do this, yes, what we know is that it's been going up absolute. But look what I can also do. The relative low was actually back in April. And so even as home, Horton was going down, it's starting to outperform the S&P. And the group is fantastic. Group is fantastic. Wow. wow. All right, Karen, yes. uh, you've got Amazon here. What do you see? I do. So it's not so apparent on the surface, but Amazon, we talk about how much is the retail business worth? Is it maybe even negative? But think about the amount of spend that they have been putting tens of billions of dollars, tens of billions that they could slow down. They don't really care about the short-term uh, stock price, mm -hmm. but I think they're going to turn that spend down. We've already seen it a little bit, which will make their retail business far more profitable than it's been, which is not. And I think that will change the tide of Amazon. All right, Carter, naughty or nice here? Naughty. It's, yeah, I uh, oh, I knew oh, it you was. naughty yeah. girl. At yeah. a 52-week low, that alone is a problem. <laughs> Sorry. I feel like we need a sound effect. All right, up next, final trades. <laughs> for the 
final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. If gold is working, gold miners were working with the beta three times. GDX. Carter Braxton Worth. GDX, too. Gold, too. Cut it all. Do it all. Courtney. A tapestry just had an upgrade. I think this is a play on a China reopening and on a soft landing. Karen Feinerman. Yes, first I want to say happy birthday to my brother, Mark Feinerman. Oh, happy birthday, yeah, Mark. And last, I'm going to pick my naughty Amazon. I bought some today. Filthy. Well, you think it's nice. He Hard thought it was naughty. naughty. I thought it was All nice. Right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. <laughs> Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.